Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Dr. Anna Oldershaw. Anna is a clinical psychologist and academic specialising in emotion-focused therapy and schema therapy. Anna is also the chief investigator on the SPEAK study, which aims to support patients in navigating emotions suppressed by anorexia nervosa, see the facade of anorexia nervosa and promote growth and recovery through emotion-based schema therapy. Anna joins us today to discuss the findings on the SPEAK study and the implications this has for anorexia nervosa treatment going forward. Hello, Anna. Hi, Hannah. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, I am. I just said to you in the introduction, I am very, very excited. I have so much that I want to discuss with you. Um, so I feel really honoured that you're here today joining me for the podcast. Um, so thank That's you. For, <laughs> thanks for coming. Um, how are you doing today? Yes, I'm fine. Thank you. Yes, really pleased to meet you. Um, we've had a few chats before, so we were just saying it's nice to, <laughs> to see each other properly. Yeah, definitely. It's funny when you speak to somebody over the phone. And like, it's interesting, actually, when you piece it all together, like I've spoken to you over the phone, I've seen your picture, but not actually like seeing you on, well, I've still not seen you in person, seeing you on the screen. So it's <laughs> it's nice to piece all that together. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So we're going to discuss Speaks today, um, which I'm very <laughs> excited about. But I guess for the listeners, they're probably thinking, what is speaks um so would you mind kind of giving us an explanation of what speaks is yes so speaks stands for specialist psychotherapy with emotion for anorexia in kent and sussex and it's sort of a name that's kind of taken on a life of its own to refer to the therapy that we developed we did a six-year research program where we really wanted to work from the bottom up. So speaking to people with lived experience of anorexia, we spoke to um, carers, therapists, and wanted to really understand people's experiences before we then went ahead and developed a therapy. So we were very much trying to do this bottom-up approach rather than top-down coming with, you know, sort of all our lofty psychology ideas. We wanted to really understand, (laughs) like, sort of what's the difficulty? What has helped, what's the change that's been linked to recovery in the past and what have people found has helped them make that change. Mm -hmm. And then once we kind of had all of that, we were then, we then applied what we know about psychology and psychological therapies to those sort of problems and change processes. And that's how we came up with the Speaks therapy. And then we spent two years testing Speaks in a feasibility trial in the Kent Eating Disorder Service and the Sussex Eating Disorder Service. That's where the Kent and Sussex comes in. (laughs) And we finished that trial in um, May of this year. So we're just sort of pulling together the results now and we'll be writing those up soon for publication and starting to let people know a bit more about Speaks. Because I think also because of it being COVID as well, we're all in this sort of this little bubble. We were in this little Speaks bubble and now it's nice to be able to tell people more (laughs) about it and have actually have some information to be able to say, you know, and this is what we found. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, that's so exciting. It sounds like such a big project that you did. Um, But I'm honestly so happy to hear that lived experience made such a was such a big part of that, because I think often, 
you know like you said sometimes it it can feel quite far removed when a, a therapy comes along um, and you don't actually kind of speak to people that have had the experience before to understand what they felt they might need from from a therapy um so yeah. i guess you know you mentioned that it's um psychotherapy and emotion focus so mm-hmm. what what do those sort of terminology what do they mean so um psychotherapy is just sort of psychological therapy Mm-hmm. And um, so we wanted something that was focused on emotion. I did a PhD many years ago now um, <laughs> in emotions and anorexia. And um, I did what I guess a lot of people in the field do, where we look to see what are the difficulties, you know. So, but a lot of people jump from what are the difficulties to here's the fix in therapy. And that's mm-hmm. why we did all the middle ground work, because we felt that that kind of wasn't necessarily thought through enough. Um, and I felt from my PhD that uh, maybe there was a bit too much focus on things like emotion regulation, the more practical things. And emotions mean a lot more than that, really. We evolved to have emotions for a really good reason. They guide us in our lives. You know, if you think back to sort of caveman days or whatever it was we were doing, our emotions gave us really good information about what, what we needed and what we should be doing. They direct us towards action. And they're a big part of who we are. They're a big part of our identity. So there's been more research done that shows that kind of we construct a material me, so a core sense of self from our emotions. They're embedded within us and they tell us about who we are. And one of the things that has been found for people with anorexia is that there's a lot of emotion avoidance, a lot of emotion suppression through qualitative research and also quantitative research. We find that people with anorexia are not talking about their feelings. They find feelings maybe a bit scary or overwhelming. And that's perhaps a mix of uh, like sort of genetics and things like that. But also life events have, have led people to, to feel that way. And so we wanted to develop a therapy that didn't just try and help people regulate their feelings or sort of manage their difficulties around emotions, but to really honour that understanding of emotions that we have, which is actually this is a core sense of of who people are. And so one of the things that we developed through talking with uh, service users, people with lived experience, was this kind of uh, idea of anorexia as being this lost sense of emotional self. So that people become really disconnected with that part of them that can guide them in their lives, that can tell them who they are, that can tell them what they need. Um, And without that, you struggle to navigate the world. You struggle to navigate relationships. You can be feeling quite lost. And so we wanted to develop a therapy that worked with that as opposed to sort of the difficulties per se. Mm, Yeah. I think it sounds brilliant because when you were saying there about, um, you know, a lot of the time it's almost learning how to manage emotions and stuff like that. I think it's that sometimes to me feels like a bit of a quick fix in terms of, yeah. you know, you're having this difficult emotion. It's almost a distraction like, oh, you know, go and do some colouring or go and do this rather than actually being able to work through those emotions and I think I completely agree with you you know in my personal experience that's one thing I lean into my eating disorder for is to be able to manage difficult emotions by just avoiding them so you know actually to be able to learn about my emotions and how how they are you know make me me um 
sounds really incredible rather than just kind of I'm feeling this thing so I'm mm-hmm. gonna do another thing to distract from it um yeah so yeah. how does it work so I mean there's there's two ways that your emotions tell you about you and who you are um and so one of them is that you're having a what you might call for want of a better word the sort of the terminology is sort of an adaptive emotion so an emotion that makes sense in response to that situation that's telling you what you need or telling you what you should do or telling you something about the relationship or whatever and that's an emotion that you need you should be listening to and acting on and obviously if, if you're not listening to those helpful emotions in the moment, then that becomes quite problematic. The other way that emotions tell you about you and who you are is the stuck emotions. So the emotions that might have made sense or might have been a natural reaction to something in the past, but have now become a bit of a a stuck pattern, an emotional process you always go to, maybe in the face of rejection or perceived rejection, or maybe in the face of a stressful situation. And those stuck patterns can be quite unhelpful. But if we can unpick those, we make sense of them. We understand where they came from. And often that's tied to where the anorexia came from too. And we can help people to start to process those, to work through them and to move on from them. Yeah, no, that, that I think that sounds really interesting. And I guess you said there, like... Um, that sometimes that's where the anorexia can develop. Have you had any thoughts about why, you know, because people do go through difficult times in their life and maybe have uncomfortable emotions, but not everybody turns to anorexia. Do you think Mm. there's anything specific that means that certain people will turn to anorexia as that sort of way to manage emotions? Yeah, I mean, and it's it's such a complex question, isn't it? I think it's one of those (laughs) things, it's like if we just had this magic answer and we knew why people Mm -hmm. ended up, with anorexia as a way of managing life, um, mm-hmm. then that would be really helpful for sort of preventative work or whatever, but it, it's never as simple as that. And it will be quite different for different people. I think there are some patterns, you know, and in Speaks we've found some patterns in terms of people with particular coping styles might end up um, moving towards kind of anorexia. Obviously it is mm-hmm. more prevalent for women than for men, although that's, changing a little bit now it's sort of shifting a little bit and um in our lost self paper we talk a lot about that that's an open access paper that maybe we could make available with the podcast um but sort of think about how anorexia developed and why it might have developed for some people and i think there's there's possibly sort of an element of perfect storm about it but one of the things that i think is that as women we get socialized in a particular way about our emotions and about how we should feel about our emotions, how we should express our emotions, how we should suppress our emotions to meet the needs of other people. Um, and women and men get very get socialised very differently. Although I do wonder whether that's changing. Parenting styles are changing mm. now, and I wonder whether men are getting slightly different messages, or young boys rather, about emotions. And I wonder whether th- that might reflect in some of the the, the gender differences now coming through in terms of people who, who get eating disorders. Um, so I think it's complex and I sort of talk about lots of different things in that paper. But, I, you know, I, I do think there is a link to 
emotions there is a link to early life experiences in terms of how we understood ourselves in the context of relationships with others and what was okay or not okay to do what was okay or not okay to feel um, whether it was okay to have our needs met were there specific things in that paper that stood out to you as I guess like you say it's it's not as easy as just like you know this thing happens and then somebody gets an eating disorder but are there common Mm -hmm. things that you see um that sort of add up to towards the development of anorexia yeah and I think it's possibly you know so when I was saying about so some of the in the the therapy which maybe we'll come more to in a minute in terms of explaining it we talk about the different ways people cope and I think there are some common ways that people who develop anorexia learn, learn how to cope and that are linked into anorexia. And I think often come perhaps before it, and maybe there's a genetic sort of predisposition towards some of those things, and then they link in. So some of the common things are around um, wanting to please other people often comes up a lot for people, or, you know, um, putting other people's needs before your own, sort of sacrificing yourself for the sake of other people, not wanting to upset other people, um, finding emotions overwhelming and, and really struggling with being with emotions. So, And we know that some people f- just feel emotions more intensely than other people, and that that's something that's perhaps physiological about them, about their makeup. And so that you can see how that would, you know, if, you, if as a young child, that's a lot to deal with. And that's hard to regulate. And so you can see how people that would push people away from wanting to be near their emotions. That's another way that people might get sort of drawn towards something that helps them avoid their emotions. So there's there's sort of a whole bunch of different. And we we did some more research and speaks around this about the main ways of coping that come up for people and, and why they might be developed. Yeah, it's really interesting what you were saying about um people pleasing there because I was having like a really um I just have been thinking so much about everything um relating to my eating disorder at the moment and I was like just trying to think so much about how how powerful an eating disorder is because I definitely would say that I align with that people pleasing mentality um and it's something that I'm really working on to actually kind of set my own boundaries and not necessarily please people but what I found really interesting when I was thinking about it is, you know, my my partner and my parents are both very much, you know, we really want you to recover and um, we want that to, you to do that for yourself and everything. But anything that the eating disorder says, that's more, it's more powerful. Like I try and please that more. And I was really trying to unpick in my own mind as to why am I trying to please an eating disorder that, you know, almost feels like a physical being but isn't a physical being compared Mm. to people that I love and adore so much um and it just it really demonstrated me kind of that strength and the power of how much an eating disorder has over you because you're listening to that and trying to please that that actually you know has no it isn't anything um in a way compared to the people that you love the most and I mean I've kind of that's kind of just an anecdotal story from me there Mm -hmm. but it really kind of emphasised to me the power of it all. Yeah, absolutely. And, th- and that comes up a lot. And, you know, I, I suppose I would question, you know, my, my if we were having therapy, whatever, I'd be curious about, okay, so what's, what happens if you don't please it? Mm. 
you know, what does that bring up for you? Because it's likely that brings up a whole load of really difficult emotions around mm. guilt, possibly shame. And um, it would make sense that you want to avoid those as much as you want to please other people or, you know, kind of do what your, your parents and your partner want you to do. In that moment, the intensity of those feelings is such that, you know, of course you want to avoid those. Of course, that's where you go to. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting point and, and not one that I had thought when I was thinking about it. But I guess those intense feelings that draw you back into the eating disorder that I don't get from my parents or my partner, you know, they don't make me feel shameful or feel guilty. It's just that, you know, you're, you, they want you to kind of get better. Mm -hmm. So that actually really makes sense in terms of um, why you go to one and maybe not the other. Um, and you've mentioned there when we were just talking about the kind of different coping mechanisms that people will use um, that you found in your research. So kind of what did you explore then um, in the SPEAK study in terms of that? So with, with SPEAK, so with all psychological therapies, you develop something called a formulation, um, which for people who don't know, it's sort of like the psychological version of diagnosis, but it's kind of like, a an understanding of where somebody is at what helped you know what was it that um, got them to this place and what's keeping it going in speaks the way that we understand people is that we're all made up of different parts so we all have a critical voice that gives us a hard time for people with anorexia the anorexic voice or the anorexic part can feel like a critical voice and is often linked to your critical voice and we have different ways of coping. So, for example, we might be quite avoidant and go into avoidant strategies. Um, so maybe sort of more cognitive processes, sometimes worry, rumination can be quite avoidant strategies, avoiding emotions. We might engage in particular behaviours. Um, so some of the eating disorder behaviours can help us to sort of disconnect from difficult feelings. People pleasing would be another way of coping with life. Um, and so for other difficulties that people have, not just anorexia, you, you know, you could you could talk about all the different ways of coping that they have and that sort of maybe alcoholism could be another way of coping, etc. So we have ways that we might self-soothe that are perhaps a bit unhelpful um so alcohol would be one of those maybe perhaps excessive exercise for somebody could be one of those things um and but that we all have deep down this vulnerable part of ourselves and we in speaks we call it our sort of little self so it's maybe linked to our childhood self who perhaps didn't get heard enough or perhaps um is there's, there's quite a lot of often sort of painful feelings kind of linked to that part. Um, and the critical voice can make that part feel quite guilty or shameful. And so we jump into a way of coping to avoid that. Uh, would be that eating disorder behaviours, avoidance, you know, people, believe, whatever it might be. Um, and so in Speaks, what we're really trying to do is to connect to that vulnerable part to connect to that emotion and to help that part move past those stuck patterns of emotion such as guilt and shame um, there's often a sense of loneliness we've heard from people sort of attached to that part that didn't you know because it, it didn't feel heard and often a worry that if I show that part 
people won't like me, they won't accept me, they won't. And so we work through all of that um, to enable people to move on from that and then to be able to stay connected to their vulnerable part because that's where we sort of talk about kind of emotions are housed and listen to those feelings to guide them in their life. And through that process, what we're also doing alongside is building, um, not a huge fan of the term, but for want of a better word, a healthy adult. So this adult self that can be in charge, that can be, we talk about it speaks as being like the conductor. So if you imagine yourself made up as like an orchestra and that um, we're made up for these different parts and they might be the strings or they might be the, you know, the woodwind or the percussion or whatever. And if you don't have a conductor, that orchestra is just doing its best to get through, to get through life, mm-hmm. but to get through the song, to get through the concert. And it's got no idea whether it's playing a good song or not. It's got no idea. Like it, it, it's very difficult <laughs> for, it, for it to be co- coherent and cohesive. And so the only way it can tell if it's doing well is by looking at the audience and the audience reaction. And there's this over-reliant on feedback from other people. Whereas if you can have a conductor can let the orchestra know, can keep the orchestra in balance, can make sure that the percussion isn't taking over and all everyone can hear is the bass drum, you know, and can keep everything in balance and make sure we don't spend too much time in our coping modes. We use them sometimes, of course, we will. We all do. Sometimes we do just need to cope in a moment, but make sure we don't get stuck there, that can listen to the emotion, can keep everything in balance. And so that's the core goal of Speaks really, is to help people to have a conductor who can hear emotion and can keep all the different parts of self in in balance in order to help people help people get what they want and need in life and to build the life and the relationships that they want to have and to guide them through that yeah yeah it makes so much sense when you say it like that as particularly that part that you said about um the only way that you can know if the orchestra is playing a good song is to rely on the audience. And I think that's such a such an interesting way of putting it because I think often with an eating disorder, it does often feel like you're either trying to seek that approval from the people around you or from the eating disorder. So to sort of shift that um, reliance from external um parties to actually internal that feels like a massive thing that I think I don't think is often really I mean you know correct me if I'm wrong that's really focused on in treatment kind of being able to trust yourself in a sense I feel like that's maybe why people turn to an eating disorder is that lack of trust of I'm making the right decision here that's you know going to be beneficial and actually sometimes I've made the wrong decision and what have I learned from that and actually that was okay yes exactly you know because even you know sort of guilt or shame they they direct us towards action you know if you feel guilty about something that directs you to to making amends and then you make amends and you move on from it Mm. but if you're feeling like there's something wrong with me or I'm a bad person you you get stuck in that and you you feel that for much longer and it's, it's harder to to move on from it yeah I was thinking about when you were saying earlier as well about almost like sort of who do you get well for Uh, One of the research projects we did was a qualitative study speaking to people who were in recovery. And one of the shifts in terms of the processes associated with recovery was that move from external to intrinsic motivation. 
And yeah. that you captured it really well when you said about trusting in yourself. That phrase comes up so much and has come up so much in Speaks as as partly a goal. It's like I want to be able to trust in myself and to know, you know, what I want and need and what I what I think is the right thing to do in any situation. And then again, came up a lot at the end in terms of when people were feeding back to us. We did a lot of qualitative work again at the end about the acceptability of speaks for people and, you know, what, what they'd found useful and um, just whether they thought it was a helpful process. And that came up a lot at the end as well in terms of what people felt had shifted for them, what had changed. And there's some sort of kind of more transformational aspect to it in terms of a sense of self and trusting in oneself and being able to guide oneself in life. It's definitely something that has kind of come to my mind recently in terms of the importance of, like you said, having that intrinsic want to recover. Because I think for a long time, my my mind was I'm going to recover for, you know, my mum and dad or I'm going to recover for my partner. And it, almost within that, because you're putting that burden on, you know, I'm going to recover for them. I personally had the expectation of, well, then you're going to have to help me. And so that meant, you know, when there were difficult decisions or, you know, diff difficult meals or things like that, I heavily relied on them to help me make that decision. And at the time, it felt more comfortable because I could say, OK, well, you know, mum's saying to do this, so that means it's OK. But long term, it doesn't help at all because you're not able to, you know, like we've already said, trust yourself and have that sort of comfort in knowing that you're able to do things on your own rather than constantly needing other people to kind of say yes it's going to be okay which I think you know that sounds so important long term and I think I've heard a lot of people in the past say oh my partner is you know really supporting me in recovery and I think that's fantastic to have somebody that is supporting you but I think often it can the relationship can become quite distorted because there's so much reliance on another person. Yeah, again, long term, just I don't think it has them as much benefit as people maybe assume initially. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think I think it's a really good point. You know, it's, it's uh, and I think initially when people are going through the refeeding process and it's you know high physical risk, having other people really support with that and help you with that. Yeah is useful but it does like it's like any way of coping taken to an extreme or when you move past the initial situation where it was a good fit it can become unhelpful and you know ultimately that just keeps you quite stuck I suppose like you're saying because you can't move on to being able to trust in yourself and direct yourself in life and you get very caught in needing feedback and reassurance from other people and it's something we know from the anxiety literature as well is that actually reassurance maintains anxiety you know some of these things that are so well-meaning and of course you know our family members and loved ones they want to support us they want to help us they want to reassure us but actually it, it can you know it can keep us quite stuck I have a really distinct memory um, going to therapy once and I've said something to my therapist that I'd asked my partner if he thought that I'd gained weight and she was like, oh, and how did he respond? Uh, and he was like, I said, you know, he he, he said, uh, I'm not answering that question. And the pride in her face, she was so like, oh, he's done so brilliantly for not saying to you, yes, you have, no, you haven't, blah, blah, blah. Like, I'll still love you regardless, whatever. He was just 
no, I'm not answering that. Um, and I was so angry at the time. I was like, no, I need to know the answer. Like, I can't give myself the answer. I need to know. And she was like, that's the whole point is that you you have to just be able to kind of be okay with not necessarily having that answer. And I still now I get wound up at that. <laughs> like, it's so bad. Please tell me. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think as well with that kind of question, I'm not expecting you to answer this, Hannah, but my response to that kind of question is, okay, but what were you really asking him? What really was the question there? Mm. Because it's often about something other really than the weight and shape. And I, I think that's one of the things with Speaks that we, we're trying to sort of cut past all of that and really try and get to, well, okay, so what was underneath that? What was really going on there? Mm. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's the thing. And that's what I often think about eating disorders on the surface. It seems very like weight, shape, food focused. And it's that simple. But actually, when you look beneath that, there's so much more going on, which that's why I think Speaks is so fantastic, because it it tries to get into that deeper stuff rather than just the sort of surface level kind of food, weight, body. Often it's linked to so much more than that. So Mm-hmm. In terms of the kind of therapeutic approach, how how does that work? Like with with working with a therapist. So the therapy um, when we did the feasibility trial, one of the questions was like, you know, how how long should this be? You know, we we weren't mm-hmm. we sort of had a sense, but we weren't quite sure. So therapy usually lasts nine to twelve months, and it's a weekly wow. therapy. Yeah. So obviously, over that time, you have breaks and stuff. Um, but yes because it's quite an intense piece of work and um, it was really interesting when we looked at the pattern of change and we did we did a lot of research into the process of change um, because that's something that we feel that sort of generally in psychotherapy people don't do they look at the outcomes and see what happened Mm -hmm. at the end but they're not really considering what happened in the middle and you know getting a better understanding of what will this work for this person this work for this person and and this is how we can learn to tweak our therapies depending on who who's coming to see us on that day Mm. um so it's nine to 12 months and weekly therapy and the therapists have a guidebook rather than a manual. So often therapies mm. are written into manuals. So it's sort of like week one, you do this, week two, you do this, week three, da, da, da. we didn't want it to be like that. So the way Speaks is set up is we have this hypothesized change process that is the therapist you're always trying to get at. And you can assess where somebody is on any given week when they come into the room and you're looking for sort of what we sort of call them markers, but just sort of indicators of what might be a useful thing to really focus in on that week. And then we have a range of different tasks that we felt would target those kind of um, mechanisms of change that we think might be indicated for anybody, depending on how, you know, where they are when they come in each week. And the tasks are all very experiential. So it's quite a range of different tasks. Some of them involve chair work. So where you come and be different parts of yourself in chairs, most often two chairs. So, you know, we might come and so come over here and be anorexia and talk to the other part of you. And then you come back and you be the other part. And the focus is very much not on having an argument with anorexia. I think often some therapeutic approaches are about sort of um maybe trying to disprove the anorexia or sort of argue back or be sort of, and you get into this very sort of intellectualized discussion around the anorexia. And of course, oftentimes people know that it's, you know, it's not making sense for them or it's not the most rational decision for them in their life at that moment. But as we were talking about earlier, 
that is very it's one thing to know that up here but it's another thing to know mm. that in here and be able to do it differently so our focus is very much on what it feels like to be living with anorexia what that's like and really trying to focus on that so that's just sort of one example of a task where people might um sit in different chairs and be so be anorexia and be the, the part on the receiving end of that. And people might hop into a coping mode in response to the anorexia. Mm. We sometimes see that. Um, yeah. And so it's noticing that it's helping people to understand the processes they go into. And one of the things that we do um, reasonably early in therapy is we build a map of the person and we do this using usually using toys. Um, some people don't like the idea of toys and that's totally fine. You don't have to use toys, but once we've started to notice in people's narratives, in the conversations we've been having in therapy, that there are these different parts, you know, so over the course of the first few weeks, people will be talking about themselves, they might be talking about the eating disorder, they might be talking about things that happened that week. And you can start to spot patterns in the way people are coping. You can start to spot that part of you that gives you a hard time. You can start to spot, um, like we were talking about earlier, that you might often try and please other people, maybe at the expense of your own needs. And you can start to sort of notice those and help somebody try to start to notice them. And then we do the formulation, which is this map of the self. And so we, we get toys, we chuck them on the floor, we sort of get down on the floor and ask the person to choose toys to represent different parts of them. And not to overthink it, but just pick up a toy that kind of they'd feel drawn to. And then we talk about why they chose that particular toy. You know, we can reflect on some of the physical features of the toy, maybe, or that this one's, you know, the critical part looks really angry, or, you know, sometimes people choose a dragon or something for that part. Um, and so we talk about them. And then we ask people to arrange them on the table in the way that they see them interacting. So where the different mm -hmm. parts are. So oftentimes at the beginning of therapy, people either will feel they don't have this healthy adult, they don't have this conductor, or if they do, it's very far away. So they'll probably place that on the other side of the table. Mm -hmm. And then they've got all these other, these other parts that are interacting. And we talk through how they interact in their life and what they look like. Um, so that happens quite early on. And one of the things that people spoke about after speaks was just having that map itself was really helpful because then they could start to notice in their own life they were responding in a certain way. And I think until you know what you're doing, you can't change it. And people might still choose to do that, but at least you're spotting it and thinking, oh, okay, I see what I did there. I'm okay with the fact that I did that, but maybe it is a possibility to do that differently. Um, or I, I can see what the knock-on effect of that now was. I see where that went in my map. And you can start to sort of consider whether the way you're doing things is the best way for you in your life. I really like just as you were saying that then I thought that visualization of how everything you know how everything exists how everything fits together sounds so useful in terms of like you said and I think sometimes this is difficult to do in the moment um but sometimes to kind of go back and be like you know why did that happen what part of me came up there um yeah. and I think that's a really interesting thing like definitely for me anyway at the, at the start of things it's like you just kind of do it it happens and you don't even think about it and then actually when it's when you start to think about it a bit more it's like it's still happening but there's a bit more thought into how could I have done that differently you know could I have spoken to that person in a different way that didn't lead to this full-blown argument around something that I was trying to eat 
And to be able to acknowledge those, I think, sounds like such a fantastic step, because once you've then done that, I imagine you can then start to think about, you know, how could I have done that differently and maybe bringing in different parts. Is there a lot of sort of reshaping how maybe people respond to situations and bring like, do you have to develop new parts or? It's not not really. I mean, it's all very different for different people. And I think just responding to what you were saying is so it's not just thinking about how could I do that differently, but it's understanding, okay, this is why I did that. And this is what it means for me that I did that. This is how it affects me in my life, that I did it that way. Um, And this is the ongoing impact of doing things that way. So often the goal is really to help to kind of minimize the ways of coping so we can kind of get past those a little bit. Because often people at the beginning of therapy will almost be coming to therapy often, perhaps in a bit of a coping mode, and trying to connect with the real person to connect with vulnerability underneath that and process feelings in such a way that the sort of the the healthy adult can grow. So I think the main thing that, and we did research on this in Speaks. So what we do in Speaks is we do this map at the beginning and then we do it again at the end and we get people to look at what's changed, what's different. And we did some research where we analysed those maps from the beginning and those maps from the end and also questionnaires from the beginning and questionnaires from the end on these different parts of self. And one of the things that we found was that at the beginning, not that many people had a healthy adult sort of on that their map. And at the end, 100% of people had a healthy adult on their map. And also that some of the coping modes that were very prominent were just a bit less prominent. We're not trying to sort of fundamentally change people. We're not trying to get rid of coping modes because we all have them. We all need to find ways to cope in life. The problem is just if we get very stuck in them, it's like anything. If it gets taken to an extreme, it can become unhelpful. And also bearing in mind that coping modes often developed when we were younger, usually as children, and they may have been a good fit for life back then. as adults the terrain of our life is very different and so we can respond differently we do have a lot more power and control in our lives than we did as children so maybe we don't need to rely on those coping modes in quite the same way or as much I mean it's helpful to know we've got them there when we need them but maybe we don't need to spend as much time in those so it's, it's helping people just to kind of make shifts within themselves as opposed to sort of fundamentally change themselves if that makes sense and and to and to make a greater connection with themselves yeah yeah I think that makes sense I think I've always kind of thought about it as you kind of have everything that you need to recover within you it's just about sometimes Mm -hmm. you know mixing up a little bit or unlocking different things and that's what therapy is for it's about you know being able to shuffle things around and see what works and see what doesn't so going back to the orchestra analogy, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. you do need a woodwind solo and other times you need a few different parts of the orchestra playing together. And sometimes, you know, one part of the orchestra does need to quieten down a little bit because it's taking over. But it's having awareness of that and being able to manage that. But fundamentally, we've all got our orchestra. Mm-hmm. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, that's really interesting. I suppose every song needs a different sort of setup yeah. for different um, musicians. And that's kind of yeah, been every life situation. Yeah, every scenario, yeah. every relationship. Yeah. So when I was reading about Speaks and the approach, there was a mention of the facade of mm-hmm. anorexia. Um, so I wanted to speak to you more about that because I think that's 
I refer to it as like the rose tinted glasses of anorexia. Mm-hmm. But I've heard quite a lot of people in the past say that, you know, it starts out as anorexia as kind of like a friend um, and then over time becomes somebody's worst enemy. Um, do you have any thoughts around that? Like, have you heard that or do you have any thoughts around that transition at all? Yeah, I have heard that. I mean, that's quite a common thing that I think comes up in therapy and there's some exercises that sort of other therapeutic approaches do around that. And to an extent, it makes sense to me, I think, um, as a therapist. I think like anything in life, it's never quite as black and white as that. (laughs) Uh, You know, I think often anorexia does come along at a time in people's lives where they're struggling with something very difficult and anorexia helps them get through that. You know, it it, it was helpful at that time, you know, and sometimes I think you've got to be, you know, there's this sense that without anorexia, I don't know if I would have survived that or that would have been even more difficult or, you know, whatever it might have been. So I don't know, I'd use the word friend, but certainly that it's, it, it often comes along in people's lives in a way, there was time where it was helpful to them. But as we were saying about any kind of coping earlier, anything taken to an extreme, or when you move on in your life and you're no longer an adolescent or, you know, wherever you were when it first developed, your life becomes different. And maybe anorexia is a poor fit now. Maybe it's actually not helping you to cope. Maybe it's getting in the way of your life and your relationships. But again, I wouldn't go so far as to call it an enemy because, you know, and I, I think... I, I wonder how helpful that is also to the therapeutic relationship if I start sort of um, turning your anorexia into this villain in your life. Yeah. Because actually, you know, there's a certain extent, it sounds strange to say, but that we, you know, we should honour anorexia. And sometimes, you know, people feel a lot of gratitude towards their anorexia. And kind of, you know, talking about that chair test, sometimes people want to say thank you. But, you know, when they're at the point where they want to move on, they want to say thank you to the anorexia for being there for them, but also let it know that I don't need you anymore. I'll always be grateful for what you did for me, but now I want to move on. So I don't know how helpful it is to really sort of um, turn anorexia into the villain. And it's, I don't think it's ever as black and white as friend and enemy. But yes, I certainly can see that sense of feeling like anorexia really helped me. And then there's a shift from feeling like it's the only way I can cope or it's the only thing that I can do or, you know, kind of whatever the thinking might be and seeing through the facade of it to realising actually it's, it's a poor fit for my life right now. But even when you get to that place, um, it can be very hard to move on from it. It's an animation of, of the Speaks Therapy, and there's this one part in it where it's all about the sort of lost sense of emotional self. There's one part of where it's kind of the self goes up into space, and it's like this is a really stuck place because even if you get to that point where you see through how things are right now and you want things to be different, making that connection with yourself and finding that part of yourself that can help you move on can be very difficult. You know, it can feel as far away as it's up in space and it's, you know, it's impossible to get there. So even though, you know, so that there is that period often where people's like, even though I can see through it, I don't know how to move on from it. And that's often that I think for us in Speaks, that was the final kind of gap that we wanted to try and bridge. Um, so I think it's a sort of a bit of a transition often for people. And yeah, I don't go for the black and white 
friend and enemy. I think that's potentially unhelpful to think of it that way. But, but you know, I, I think anorexia does often help people in a time and a place. But it, it's moving on from that that's important, I think, when your life shifts. Yeah, I mean, I'm personally of the opinion that any black and white thinking um, when, you know, thinking about anorexia is probably not the best thing because it can be, in my experience, so black and white. Um, but I thought it was really interesting what you were saying there about, like, being grateful to the anorexia. Um, and I think I've definitely had moments myself where, you know, weirdly, I'm like, well, I wouldn't be doing this podcast if I hadn't had this experience and I wouldn't have developed all these skills. But, you know, sometimes you can be like, well, would you? Like, would you have had something else that you'd been interested in? So it's, you can't, you know, categorically say this was because of um, the eating disorder or whatever. But I think it is really interesting. And one thing that I often find is sometimes if I'm not very well in touch with my emotions and I start leaning into restriction or I start leaning into exercise, it's almost a, hmm, something's not quite right here. And I actually was completely not aware that things were maybe not going in the best way. But the actual, you know, movement back into the behaviours has allowed me to identify that, you know, oh, you know, maybe things aren't quite right. Um, but I wanted to ask you there again, and it might be a similar sort of question to what I just asked before, but in my mind, it's slightly different with with that sort of movement back into the behaviours. Again, it's kind of that I what I call it the rose tinted glasses in that, you know. You go back to those behaviours, knowing if you've gone through therapy, knowing full well that actually they don't serve you. Um, but when I think about my time as a teenager, when I had an eating disorder, I can't remember the social things I missed out on, the arguments I had with my parents, the sort of like depressive emotions that were attached to it. I only remember the fact that it helped me in that moment and it felt good. Um, so do you have any thoughts about that in terms of, or have you heard that from other people in terms of it kind of only having that positive association with it? And sometimes that can feel like what you want to go back into it, despite the whole host of, you know, many more negatives um, than positives. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it goes back to, uh, just in my view, a little bit what we were talking about earlier, the, the difference between the head and the heart, you know, mm. is like you can know everything, you know, and often people mm. do, you know, and people come into therapy and they know what they, often people know more about nutrition than I do, you know, they know what <laughs> they need to be eating, they know all of that. There's no point in me going over and over and over all that. Obviously, you need to make sure people do have that basic information in psychoeducation. But, you know, for the people in, in Speaks who have perhaps been on well for a really long time, they've done all of that. They they know it all up here. Um, mm. But it, it's it's sort of feeling it inside. And so that's slightly the intrinsic motivation. But also it goes back to why emotions are so important, because I feel we're guided by our emotions rather than our thought processes. So we can have thought processes in response to emotions and our thoughts can override our emotions at times if we need them to. But ultimately, people will be more driven to avoid a bad emotion right now than to pursue a good emotion in the future. That's just how we're, I think we're wired. Um, so right now you're feeling something negative or there's something going on, some kind of turmoil. You know anorexia has helped you with that in the past. It makes sense that that's where you jump to. Even though up here 
when you think it through, you, you know that actually in the long term, this isn't going to be great for me. Da, 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 da. But right now I feel awful and I need to get rid of that. It, it really does. And it's really interesting, actually, because I was reading Everything I Know About Love by Dolly Alderson um the other oh, day oh yeah I've seen that tv Such... series I loved it oh, <laughs> but you should read the book the, I mean I am a fan of you know when they make a book out of a mm-hmm. um sorry they make like film or a book I'm always a fan of the book more uh, which I don't, I don't want to say I'm a massive like reading fan um but the book I think because you go into your own little world it was wonderful I felt like it's just me mm. and Dolly having a chat um <laughs> but in it she there's a chapter called I was gurued um and uh, she goes on a date with this guy and he is a therapist and he says to her the problem that you have is that you are incredibly clever and you know all the theory you know everything that you could possibly need but the issue is is you're not feeling it and I was sat there when I was reading I was like I feel like I've been outed like this is um, <laughs> I've been seen but <laughs> yeah I, I they've got me they know exactly what's going on um you know, I I feel very much that I get all the theory. I've been doing this for years, but you're so right in that you it's that heart rather than just in your head. It's and that's where the emotion focus comes in so much. Um, yeah, yeah, and yeah, and it makes absolute evolutionary sense because back in the day when we were facing dangers all the time, and you know, it really was life and death sort of survival mm-hmm. every single day. Being driven by our emotions, being driven to avoid um anxiety or sort of any kind of negative feeling that was one of the ways that we survived if we you know if we listened to that more than listened to something positive that was going to be in the future Mm -hmm. that was the thing that was going to help us to survive avoiding that negative feeling Mm -hmm. yeah definitely and it makes so much sense like instinctively doesn't it like you say um if you're worried you know thousand years ago there'd probably be a reason why you were worrying you needed to act on your instinct um Mm -hmm. but I think like you know we've discussed actually having maybe different coping mechanisms that serve more positive to you than the eating disorder is really important Mm -hmm. um and sorry Hannah I was going to say just one of the things to, to identify one of the things we try and identify and speak is around um whether those feelings are actually a good fit for the situation because sometimes people mm. get stuck into instinctive emotional responses to a situation that aren't actually a good fit for that situation anymore. They mm. may have made sense in the past. They may have been how you survived that situation in the past. Um, but actually, with what you know now, they're, they're not a good fit. They're, the information you've got isn't really telling you those feelings mm. are relevant and should be acted on. But it's a stuck pattern. And in emotion focus mm. therapy, they, they talk about sort of stuck old patterns that we get caught into in terms of our emotions. So one of the, the goals in Speaks is to identify those and to move past those so that we can learn to, and it goes back to that trusting in ourselves, so we can learn to trust our feelings a bit more because we know that they're relevant in that situation and they're giving us good information. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that makes sense as to why you might, turn to an eating disorder you know if you do kind of think of it as like a separate entity to yourself because if you can't if you can't trust yourself because let's say you know you feel worried or anxious and so you know as an example you might restrict your food but then that doesn't work then even though that's sort of like what the eating disorder is pushing on you you've made that decision yourself so then it's almost like it my sorry I'm thinking about this as I say it but it's like a 
constant negative cycle because you're listening to the eating disorder but making the decision yourself and then it doesn't work so it kind of reinforces it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah but one of the other things I think is that an eating disorder gives you a solution like it gives you a fix Mm. it gives you something tangible that you can do if you're feeling quite powerless in your world or if you're feeling like there's something wrong with me like I'm just there's just something wrong with who I am fundamentally um that's very difficult to feel like you can do something about and you can change and and often when we're younger we can't we're powerless in our situations we can't change certain things that are going on around us that maybe we don't like or are unhelpful to us but the Asian disorder gives you something very tangible to fix yourself fix I'm saying in inverted commas here um <laughs> you know and to work towards that can feel like right I'm doing something about this situation mm. and obviously you're not obviously you know that the eating disorder um it's sort of we talk about it in the animations that it gives you false hope and it gives you false information about what you really need yeah but it gives you something it gives you something to work on when you might be otherwise feeling quite lost yeah yeah that's such a good point um and because you have those goals you feel like you're progressing whether or not you actually ever recognize that progress because often it's just kind of drifts mm-hmm, off into mm-hmm. thin air and there's a new goal already um yeah that negatively like you say, what you're saying it's never enough mm-hmm. yeah yeah definitely yeah yeah wow it's a it's a whole whole uh yeah so much more than just kind of the way that people may simply think about it um yeah i guess yeah. in terms of the recovery um we sort of spoken about this a bit before um with kind of coping mechanisms and stuff but I've often heard people say like, you know, um, eating disorder is such a big part of my life. Like I need to find something to replace it. So whether that's like a new hobby or something, um, trying to like fill that hole. But I'm kind of skeptical about that just because I think it's, I think it is important to find new hobbies and stuff like that and things that make you happy. But I think my um, skepticism comes in in terms of if you then I don't know, it just feels like translating your identity into something else. Um, Or, you know, if that thing, then you don't have access to it or you can't do it. Where are you left then? What do you think about that? Do you think it's important to find things to replace it or is it kind of going beneath that? Um, I'd say that's a byproduct of what we're trying to achieve in speaks so by developing somebody's kind of you know as we spoke about sort of their healthy adults are the part of them that's their conductor that can sort of be kind of in charge of their life people start to just kind of naturally do things differently so um occasionally we might talk about how you might tackle something differently or whatever but oftentimes people come back to me in a session and say oh this happened this week and you'll never guess what I did this or I said to that person I don't like it when you do that and I don't want you to do that anymore and it wouldn't have been a suggestion that came from me at all it's something that happens organically for that person and they just start naturally doing something differently and it might be someone comes back to me and goes do you know what you never guess what I did this week i books and pottery classes I've always wanted to you know learn what you know pottery or whatever and I decided I was just going to go and do it and it's not that we've gone right okay you need to build another identity what's important to you or what's people have just organically started to build their lives so it's about reducing reliance on the eating disorder and then and it's sort of a gradual natural shift 
because mm. I, I do think that, like you say, about building that identity, it, you can end up building another sort of false identity, mm-hmm. really. And what we're about, you know, in Speaks, what we're trying to achieve is helping people to connect with their sort of sense of self and who they are. Um, And then the behaviours come naturally out of that. Mm. I feel like if you jump too much to the behaviours of the building the identity, you miss that really important step. And like you say, it becomes unsustainable then. Yeah, and I think one important thing that came to my mind then when you were talking was having lots of different things rather than just one thing that becomes your identity and maybe also the sort of reasons as to why you're doing it as well you know joining a pottery class is that so that you can get creative and make friends mm-hmm. and you know kind of um do something with your hands and have that attraction I think that sounds positive but if it's oh I'm gonna do this so that that's a way of controlling my diet or that's the way that I can lose weight and that sort of thing. It's it's looking at the intention behind it. You know, are you just trying to shift the eating disorder into a more disguised mm-hmm. hobby or are you actually doing something that's going to benefit you long term? Definitely. So are you building another coping mode mm-hmm. or another way of coping or are you actually connecting with who I am and my sense of self? Mm. And, um, you know, the behaviours would come naturally out of that. So you're guided by who you are, not guided by something you're trying to achieve or prove or, you know, a way of coping. Yeah, that sounds really good. And I think it's having that honesty with yourself about why you're doing things, which is really hard. Um, But being able to really sit down and think about, you know, what's the motivation behind this? Is this going to benefit me? So that's why the map's really helpful, because sometimes we'll say, you know, I might say to someone, OK, and which part of you do you think did that? You know, when they, you know, if you come and you say, oh, so this happened this week. I'm like, OK, which part of you did that? Do you think that came from or just to try and help people to sort of notice patterns? And that's about being honest with yourself. It's like, so what is my motivation here? Which part of me is this coming from? And what does that mean about why I'm doing this and whether or not it's going to be helpful for me? I think that's the thing. Um like that just that awareness and that acceptance Mm -hmm. of what's going on and having that awareness being able to take a step back um I spoke on the last episode we did um Jacqueline spoke about pausing um and I thought that was a really fascinating thing of you know even if you still do it just kind of pausing beforehand to think about why am I doing this and is this what I want to do sounds yeah really powerful in terms of making those decisions yeah, definitely. It's like I was saying earlier, it's like, you know, even if you still do it, just knowing that you're doing it um, yeah. is really helpful in and of itself. And that you can't ever really stop doing it unless you're kind of aware of, of that process. Yeah. So just pausing and knowing, even if you still do it, is is a massive step. So I wanted to talk to you a bit about speaks and maybe the um applicability of it so when i was reading some of the papers that you sent me i noticed that the duration of um, anorexia for the people that you had involved was i think it was like 8.85 years um Mm -hmm. and there was quite a lot of um eating sort of behaviors or complexities comorbidities like depression anxiety which i did notice that improved throughout which i thought was amazing um so do you think that speaks is more applicable for maybe somebody that's had anorexia for a longer duration um, and with more complexities or do you think it could be for anybody I think it could be for anybody 
I think, so I wouldn't say it's more applicable to people with more sort of complexity and longer illness duration, but I'd say it's more necessary to take that kind mm. of approach. Um, yeah. You know, as we were saying earlier, what, if you've had anorexia for a long time, you, you've often had other treatments, you might have had CBT or other treatments, and you often know all the stuff. Uh, you know what you should be eating, you know the behaviours that you're engaged in, you've had all the psychoeducation and all of that sort of stuff, but you're still quite stuck. And often people also can be weight restored and still feel massively stuck and struggling. So some of those treatments that maybe really focus in on sort of more kind of symptoms and behaviours perhaps become less relevant for you when you've been unwell for longer. And also then when you do have complexity involved, so maybe trauma, maybe other diagnoses, um, you're still a whole person. You, you know, it's still one person mm. sat in front of me. So the idea yeah. that someone with a lot of complexity, you can only you should only be working with their eating disorder doesn't really make sense to me as a clinician. Yeah. You know, I think I should be working with the whole person because I can't. I can't box someone up piecemeal. Mm. And of course, all those things will be connected in some way. Mm. So what that this is one of the reasons why we came to Develop Speaks, actually, was because I feel in nice guidelines, it's quite a big gap for people who have been unwell for longer or maybe people who are weight restored mm. but still really struggling and have had other treatments and, you know, and are either sort of keep coming back through services or feel very stuck in a service for a long time. Obviously, we're not meeting their needs somehow, and we were really keen to develop a therapy that could perhaps be more helpful for people mm -hmm. to, to sort of move on. Because, you know, I always believe that people can get better, people can move forward um, in ways that they want to in their lives. And so as a clinician, it often those people were the people on my caseloads and I and I was sort of doing different pieces of work and I thought I want to develop something a bit more that's a bit clearer that maybe we can get an evidence base for um so yeah so that's kind of where speaks came from so it's not to say that I don't think it would be applicable for people with um shorter illness durations or less complexity and when we did the speech conference there were actually a lot of clinicians there who work more with adolescents and they felt it was really relevant for adolescents because of course that is a time in your life when you're building your identity yeah. and you know it it does fit with that you know what better time to sit and reflect on all of this um so i do think it's relevant for that for for other um sort of maybe even other presentations uh other eating disorders other diagnoses but I think it's especially necessary for the people who've been ill for longer and have had the other stuff um, and are all sort of quite stuck, really, and, and struggling to find a way to move forward. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think um, that's a really nice way to describe it is that it's it could be applicable for shorter durations, you know, maybe not so many comorbidities and complexities. But I would agree with you that maybe the people that are not able to get the support or that are being missed are those ones that have had the longer duration eating disorders um or with the different um comorbidities and stuff like that i know you know I, again um i feel like i'm anecdotally throughout this whole thing but it, it just feels like it all resonates helpful. a lot um i went to uh just the broad mental health team um for uh treatment a few months ago and um, they said 
they were asking different questions and I mentioned about the eating disorder um, and they came back to me and said that they wouldn't be able to support me because they weren't a specialist eating disorder service but then I went to the eating disorder service and they said because of the depression and anxiety it wouldn't be possible to treat me and so then you're you're left in the middle and at, at one point I did question should I disclose the fact that I'm struggling with my eating because I knew that they would say we're not able to support you and then like you said you know the the eating sort of something that I am suffering with and therefore that needs to be added into the complexity um and you know I, I don't think sometimes people think what they're saying but you know, I had so many calls where they'd be like and due to the complexity of your case I'm like okay so this is really really helping me right now feel as though you know there's there's a positive future um and that you're going to be able to support me so I think <clears throat> the fact that it's looking at it all and tying it all together and speaks you know from my personal experience I know that that is just not something that's currently possible so it's incredible to hear that that's the work that you've been doing yeah I mean it's ludicrous isn't it you know it's like mm -hmm. presumably the more complexity the more support we should be giving you know that's that's <laughs> kind of what you you would think that's yeah. that's what we should be doing in my view um and yet services, unfortunately, are set up in this piecemeal way. And I know also that as clinicians, and particularly, I think, because of the risk around eating disorders, um, in eating disorder services, we will accept people, even if we're not quite sure how to work with them, because we, we obviously want to try and manage the physical risk. And so often eating disorder clinicians are left kind of like not quite sure what to do for somebody and feeling quite helpless yeah. and powerless. And yeah, so that was partly where I was coming from with Speaks was like, I, you know, I want to be able to give myself, but also other clinicians and other services, something that can be offered to people who are who are coming with complexity. And um, yeah, so that's kind of my mission next is to try and get Speaks out there a little bit and, and to offer some more training to, to other clinicians who, who would be interested in training in it. Amazing. So I, you mentioned at the start that you were like typing, I know you said you were typing up your results or you were going mm -hmm. to be typing them up, but have you found a positive effect from Speaks? Yeah, we have. So we, I've, I've done some sort of basic analysis and we found some significant changes across some key things. We measured more than just mm -hmm. the eating disorder symptoms and behaviours, but often they're the ones that people want to hear about. Um, so our sample, like you mm -hmm. said, Hannah, they were quite unwell at the start of therapy. In our trial, we, we didn't have an upper BMI limit. So some people were weight restored, some people were still underweight. We thought that was quite important, as I spoke about earlier is you know is around complexity and, and not just sort of restricting it to to people who are underweight but had been unwell for a long time a lot of comorbidities we found that people's eating disorder behaviors and um thoughts were at the, the high level so sort of a little bit above kind of the the means for, for um this kind of population uh anxiety stress and depression were very severe and then after therapy, people's anxiety, stress and depression were from severe to mild. Eating disorder behaviours came down a lot. Um, so for those who were underweight at the start of therapy, actually their eating disorder thoughts and behaviours were in the healthy range by the end of therapy. Wow. And um, for people who were weight restored, often we find that their, their thoughts and behaviours 
are reported at a higher level, I guess, mm-hmm. because there's a lot more sort of going on in their heads when, when your weight mm-hmm. restored, there's a, you know, there's a lot more going on in terms of that eating disorder, giving you a hard time about the fact that you're uh, slightly sort of, you know, in the, in the healthy weight range. And, um, but there, there's came down significantly as well. And that was almost in the healthy range, not quite, but close to it. Um, and again, people's weight was for those who were underweight at the start of therapy, their weight, the, the mean weight by the end was again, almost in the healthy range. It's like 0.1 away. <laughs> so, yeah. so, but, but it's interesting because in speaks, we never really, yes, we focus on food and eating weight and shape to the extent of risk management and psychoeducation and making sure people have got that information. As I said, a lot of people, when they started speaks already had all of that because they'd been through other treatments, but we never, set homework around food eating weight and shape really we never we don't focus on that we talk about the the sort of the eating disorder voice and how that affects somebody but we we don't focus on that behavioral change and it's interesting how that sort of naturally happens and it was also interesting looking at the the sort of the progress of that change that there was quite a bit in the beginning and then it's sort of tailed off in the middle and then there was loads at the end. And I think that reflects the process of speaks. So at the beginning, we're building the map and people are getting a clearer sense of what's going on for them. And then in the middle, there is all this work around emotions and that can feel quite hard. Actually, there's a lot of processing going on. So I can see why people are still relying on their ways of coping, eating sort of being one of those. And then later on, when the healthy adult is getting stronger and stronger and stronger, a lot of those behaviours just kind of drop off quite significantly. Um, so that was really interesting to, to sort of see that process of change. One of the other things that was really interesting that came out of the trial for me was because it was a feasibility trial, um, one of the questions we wanted to answer was like, can it be done? So as I was saying earlier, one of the questions was like, how long does this actually take? And is it okay for therapists? Do they feel like they have, you know, after our training, they have the tools to deliver it, that kind of thing. But also, you know, we've talked about how often people with anorexia can be quite emotionally avoidant and not want to sort of go there. And that can be one of the reasons why they get so stuck in anorexia. And so we didn't really know, like, you know, we were going to be going to people and going, so, we know that you avoid emotions, but we want to give you this therapy where all we talk about is emotions. Are you up for that? And, um, you know, we didn't know if everyone was going to go, no way. Like, <laughs> I'm not no. doing that. But actually, um, people were really keen and thought it made sense to them. And, and, you know, when we explained it, they were like, ah, okay, I can see why this is relevant for me. Yes, I really want to give mm. it a go. And again, at the end of of therapy when we got the feedback people were really positive about that aspect of it so and and also interestingly for when people started therapy some people came out for various reasons some of them covid related like they couldn't access online therapy because we ran this trial we just started just before covid and then all the restrictions came in and we had to move everything online um so some people unfortunately came in and then couldn't complete it because of that but we didn't have anybody drop out of the treatment because they said this isn't for me or yeah. you know this isn't making sense or I, I don't want to do this anymore or whatever um so it, it really felt like it resonated with people and once people started the process it was amazing how people committed to it and and really wanted to see it through I, I mean personally I think it sounds amazing and I think the fact that 
it is focused on emotions which ultimately you know feels like the driver for a lot of this it's going deeper like you said than the food and the way it has an impact on that which I think you know for me I think of course it will because I'm I'm using those behaviors to manage things but it's it's not that they're the issue it's what's going on underneath that's the issue sort of working with that core underlying mechanism so it's like having a hypothesis about what's driving this and just going mm. for that trying to work with that yeah. rather than all sure. the other stuff and then the you know the, the sort of the hypothesis is that, that will have a knock-on effect mm. on everything else yeah which i think really the fact that you know depression anxiety and stress were also reduced throughout doing that i think that really demonstrates that factor that mm. actually getting to you know the hypothesis of what's causing it is more important than maybe like picking out the singular things mm. and the, you know the fact that you've had such amazing results and I mean nobody to drop out because they, they felt like you know they couldn't do it or it was too much I think really shows that you navigated it in such a way that meant you know recovery and therapy is never going to be nice it's going to be a difficult process but obviously shows that the individual felt held and that they could kind of navigate that and I think the fact that it's nine to 12 months as well you know especially if you've had you know the average was what 8.85 years for anorexia if you've had that for nearly nine years it's it's Mm. going to take that length of time to unpick everything um, and to be able to have that space to unpick that and feel you know it's not just a six-week thing that I have to chat about and then I'm kind of left again um, mm-hmm. I can understand why the sort of the results are the way that they are. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a process. We have, you know, we have to be also quite practical in terms of yeah. what services would be able to take on. We didn't want to come up with a therapy that then nobody can roll out because it's too unrealistic for services to deliver. So it's that sort of balance between the two. And I guess for for people listening, if they're kind of sat there thinking, "Wow, this sounds amazing. Where can I sign up?" What are the practicalities of it? You said sort of that you're typing up the results and hoping to roll that out. So is it accessible at all yet or is it something that will be in the future? It's not accessible that much yet. I think um, there may be some accessibility in private practice, but in terms of in the NHS, it's quite limited because we only rolled it out in two NHS services as well. So it was only clinicians in those services who got trained in it. as I was saying earlier, I'm kind of on a mission now. Like I, I want to, and we did have a lot of interest from the Speaks conference of people who wanted to train in it. Um, so we've just set up some training dates literally last week. We, we decided to set up some training dates for next March. So we're starting to promote that now. And my hope is that we will get other NHS clinicians sort of across the country trained up in it and be able to start to offer it in their services um i guess you know i think initially it would probably be for people who've got the sort of more complexity and longer durations but hopefully over time it can grow we also hope to try and get some funding to do a bigger trial um so do a big randomized control trial of speaks and we'll, we'll see where that goes um, but yeah, in the in the near term, I just kind of want to try and get it out there and, and try and make it a little bit more accessible, um, because like sure. you say, it feels like it makes a lot of sense to people, and we feel quite positive about it based on the feasibility trial, and we'll sort of see where it goes from there. Really, I mean, I don't know. I've, I've, this is like speaks has been my life for like the last six years. It's just been yeah. my job <laughs> for the last six years. So it's sort of a slightly different world now of kind of not developing it and testing it anymore and sort of getting it out there and yeah. trying to make it accessible for people who want it. It sounds incredibly exciting. 
and you know i just on behalf of probably everybody listening want to thank you for all the hard work and dedication you've put into it because it it sounds to me as though you have really got a you know everything you've been saying I've been like yeah 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 like you have worked so hard to get a real grip and understanding on the difficulties and the things that maybe don't work in current therapies um so i you know anything i can do to support this going forward please just let me know because i think getting this out um will be so helpful and you know any sort of services that are thinking about it i think you know yes there might be that oh well it's more training and that's going to take time but actually if you can if you're able to provide this for people and have those life-changing changes that you mentioned before it's going to mean that service users are with with um services and don't keep coming back to services a lot less um because they're able to actually fully recover and go on with their life so yeah thank you so much for your work yeah that's the hope no thank you thanks for for having me and let me talk about speaks today and you know i mean it's been my absolute pleasure to work on speaks for the last six years i was sad sad that that all ended but you know i'm going to continue with it now and i felt so passionate at the start that we needed something different and that there was a whole quite a large group of people that were not getting what they needed or not having enough of their needs met. Um, and, you know, I, I wanted, I was really passionate about developing something different for that group of people. Um, so I'm pleased that we've, you know, we've developed something that hopefully can be helpful for at least some people. Well, I will put all of the things that you mentioned throughout the podcast today in the show notes and um, the papers and the animation and stuff like that. But if people are interested mm-hmm. in, I guess, following Speaks um, and the progress, is there anywhere that they can, fi- they can find that information? There's, um, we've got a Twitter handle, which is Speak Study. And I've got a Twitter as well, which is just Anna Roldishaw. And so we can, I don't think we have yet, but we can post on there information about training that's coming up. All the, all the sort of, um, when we did the Speaks conference in May, there were a couple of people who sort of live tweeted the whole conference. So people are interested wow. to hear more and to hear about the change process research and the acceptability research and stuff, they can go back and read those tweets if they want to. And as you said, the papers will hopefully be out soon. Yeah. Okay. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Hannah. It's been great. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.